Hello and welcome to episode 14, is it, of the Teaching Comprehensibly podcast. I'm your host, Joel Sidwell, and I got a grab bag of stuff to talk to you about today. We're going to focus it around building community. I think that's a great topic, and I have some thoughts uh, about that, how to build community in your classroom. I'm going to tell you about a great conference I just went to, a wonderful book that I'm reading, and how it's going with my classes, specifically my beginner level one sort of SEL class. I want to talk about that. So let's get started without any ado. Welcome back. I know it's been a minute on hiatus. I'll explain my absence as well. And I hope you're doing good teaching your CI and uh, trying new stuff. So where I've been, what I've been up to, uh, trying to explain my long hiatus and irregular posting. So long story short, there was an opportunity that came up for me that might have led to a very different role for me. Um, So I was debating whether or not the podcast was something I was going to keep contributing time and energy to if it was may or may not be relevant to my day-to-day life as as an educator anymore. That opportunity did not work out. So here I am back in teaching land, happily. Uh, I'm glad to be teaching still and continuing in the position that I'm in. I'm very fortunate to be teaching German full-time in a, in a great district. So all's well. That ended well. So beyond the absence, um, I wanted to check in about my level one class. This was a class I petitioned my administration to add last year. My pitch was, let's have a, an SEL-focused comprehension-based German 1 class to catch those kids that fall through the cracks that come from other districts that don't have previous language ability. Usually we dump them into Spanish 1, and it's someone who teaches it kind of reluctantly. They get a lot of behavior issues. The kids don't pass, whatever. Not all the kids pass. And it's this kind of crappy hot potato that gets passed around the department. So I said, hey, give them to me. I'll gladly teach these kids. And I'm happy to report that it's going pretty freaking awesome. Um, So this group, I have 11 students in this class, and it's a very diverse group of personalities, different grade levels, different, um, yeah, actually, it's also my most uh, diverse class in other ways. I've got the most people of color in this class than I have in almost any of my other classes, at least percentage-wise. And I have Asian Pacific Island background. I have... Uh, Eastern European background, I have African American background, I have sort of standard white American kid background. And my biggest challenge I knew going into this class was how different they all were from each other and trying to build community there. So one thing that I included in this class is every Wednesday or every every other week at this point, I just do a quick roundtable check-in with the students. I have them sit in the chairs. We do, this is not something I do in German. This is totally in English. Um, this is an SEL thing where just check in with the kids. How's it going? And I pose them a few questions, some fun, some light, and some sort of serious. Like I, I'll ask them things like, what's a challenge you faced recently? Or what's something you're struggling with? I've treaded very lightly. I don't get I've tried not to ask questions that would elicit too deep or too personal responses because I don't want students to feel 
to have forced vulnerability before they're ready. So I've kept it pretty light and I always give the kids to opt out of, of a question. They just can't opt out of the entire conversation. That's my rule. You can skip something, but you can't skip everything. So, and for the first couple of times we did it, it was a lot of one word answers. It was a lot of just repeating what the kid before them said, but I have noticed they have started to open up. Uh, they answer questions about a variety of topics. They laugh. They're starting to relate to each other. And now, even when I'm not doing that, the class has just developed this really fun, positive, upbeat kind of jokiness back and forth between myself and them. Um, they all know each other's names. They interact with each other. They joke with each other. And it's pretty positive. I, there's really no negative relationships that I can see. So far, it's great. I just love teaching them and what they can do and what they're capable of and what how quickly they can absorb. I'm just like blown away. Um, and what am I doing with them day to day? You know, I've been using this hybrid sort of hackneyed version of Tina Hargadon's daily lesson framework, daily language framework. It felt a little unwieldy. It felt a little cumbersome. My periods are down to 40 minutes. Last year for a block period, that plan was awesome. Yeah, German one class going great. Um, loving these kids. There is, uh, there are a couple kids that I, I need to try to make a more personal connection with. I need to try to, I think getting them, a little one on one time would be helpful, because, this these students are, still not fully engaged, and and this is something this, these particular students struggle with in most of their classes. So. It's just going to require a little more focused attention because the my shtick, my day-to-day, -day, you know, demeanor and friendliness and whatever is not lost on them, but they need a little extra TLC to really get in the game. So that's what I'm going to be working on going forward. But hey, it's the year is still got a lot of the year in front of us. Plenty to go. We're planning for, we're working towards June, right? So I know I can get these students um, in the game by then. And that's... A challenge I'm excited to work on. All right, so next segment, I'm going to talk about this awesome conference I went to all about your and my favorite topic, comprehensible input. Be right back. So the conference I attended, it was a BER, Bureau for Educational Research. I'm sure if you're a teacher in North America, you've seen these flyers or seen this website or gotten emails from them in your department mailbox, whatever. Uh, they run conferences all over the country on all sorts of different things. They have languages, they have all sorts of different topics, not just language. But the presenter, the presenter's name stuck out to me, Janice Holter Kiddock, um, because the teacher that inspired me to get into CI was inspired by going to this woman's conference. I was like, ooh, I gotta go. I gotta see this. So I convinced a couple of colleagues to come along with me, my, my sort of posse at work. There's four of us that hang out and talk to each other and swap ideas. But anyway, Janice Holter-Kiddock, she is from Minnesota. She built her the framework of her presentation today. It was a full-day conference, so from 8.30 to 3. And she built her whole thing around her teaching us Swedish as she went through all the different kinds of activities she did. And it was really nuts and bolts, good CI strategies. It didn't, it you could go in there having almost no prior knowledge and kind of get it. It would be helpful to understand some of the 
philosophy and research behind CI before you went in there because she didn't spend a ton of time on that, but that the focus really was on here are things that you can start doing tomorrow if you want to incorporate these in your lesson. So very practical, very useful, like I said, good old nuts and bolts, CI strategies, how to do PQA, how to do storytelling techniques, how to do songs with the kids, how to um, different strategies for getting reps on target structures, um, how to scaffold, how to get them to write and speak with scaffolding, all sorts of just really, really practical stuff. She gave just wonderful, wonderful presentation today. And I'm so excited, especially for my ones, um, but really the ones, two, three, all the levels, um, because these techniques, they really do work at every level. But there were a lot of things I've been struggling with lately, like how do I make sure kids are engaged? You know, kids in some other materials I've read, it's like instruct the kids to hold up a fist when they don't understand something. Kids don't do that. <laughs> I've tried. And once in a while, one brave kid will do it. And the thing is, the mind wanders. Kids don't really know the moment that they lose the thread. And I experienced that a little bit today when we're trying to learn Swedish. My brain would just be like, oh, enough. Like, yeah, I understand the words being, being said to me, but I did feel that sort of brain fatigue and my mind wandered. And it is, even though you're just asking simple yes or no, is this a cat? Is this a dog? Is it brown? Is it white? Is it tall? Is it short? These sound like easy, obvious questions, but when you're doing it in a language that's new to you, your brain is doing all these things at once. It's processing these new sounds. It's associating those sounds with meaning. If those meanings are in your short-term memory, then it's having to recall and recall and recall that. It's a lot. It's a lot of work. I, I, I have a lot more sympathy for my students whose eyes start to glaze over when I find myself talking or reading something that I kind of know is a little bit above their level. Um, but I just hope for the best. I'm like, oh, they'll get the gist. And she made the point. She used those exact words. She said, a lot of teachers say that they'll get the gist, but they don't, <laughs> they don't get the gist. And, and there's more to, if we're building towards fluency and proficiency, if we tell the kids the best they can hope for is to get the gist of most of the passages they're going to read, they're not going to like reading because then it just becomes a guessing game. When they read in English, for the most part, they do understand what they're reading. We want them to get that way with German. So we have to start from simple text and build up and, and, and do these, these techniques where it's like, oh, they're reading without realizing they're reading. And they're reading in a way that they understand what they're reading and making meaning out of it. So great conference. Janice holter Kiddock. if she comes to your town, go see her. Or if she comes anywhere near your town, go see her. Um, get your district to pay for it, but go see her. It's um, it's great. She's great. Um, and I think I'm going to try to reach out to her and ask her to be on the podcast. But I want to get a few more episodes in the can and get consistent with it again before and kind of build my audience back a little bit before I ask someone to be on an interview again. So she would be a great guest, though. She's just so animated, so smart, so full of ideas, and clearly has been there. She's... Uh, had a lot of experience. She's been teaching since the 1980s, so she's seen every trend come and go. Um, and I think she can really speak to most people's experiences. Uh, let me share about a book that a friend turned me on to. So this is not particularly for language, 
but it is highly relevant to what we do. And the book is called Why, Why Don't Students Like School? And it is by Daniel T. Willingham. And it's existed in several editions. It is basically exactly what the title says, Why Students Don't Like School. It, it talks about sort of traditional methods in school and why they often fail kids and really boiling education down to the simple things. And I swear, especially for the first three or four chapters, it's almost like he's talking right to language teachers. But really what he says applies to almost any discipline. I, there are some controversial points in the book. There are some things that might make people go, hmm. Um, but overall, I think it's a really great uh, companion to anyone who's trying to learn about how to improve their teaching practice in general. Um, and CI really fits with this. It's about if a student, if we want to, so I'll summarize one of his main points. If we want a student to learn a thing, they have to think about that thing. They have to do mental work with that thing. So language is a perfect metaphor. We want a student to learn language. They have to do mental work with the language. We have short-term memory. We have long-term memory. Things take a while to get into long-term memory. They have to be memorized. They have to be practiced. Practice leads to retention. Um, so you give the student meanings of words, let's say, meanings of words in the foreign language. We have to practice them, but not just rote practice them, because rote memorization has its place, kind of. The author makes the point that rote memorization of basic math facts, your pluses, your minuses, your dividing tables, um, are really helpful to know. And as an adult, I can attest, most like just knowing that 5 times 3 is 15, knowing that 5 times 4 is 20, and knowing that, that 6 times 7 is... 35? I don't know. See, I never memorized them. This is my problem. I still have to think about some of them. Um, are objectively good. It's objectively good to know those things. Language is a different kind of animal. Uh, you could argue for memorization, but you'd have to prove that what you're memorizing, that, that having them rote memorize something is better than teaching it to them in context through basic repetition in a communicative setting. Like, that's where I have a hard time, like just rote repetition. I just don't think it's like, how is that ever better? How is repetition? How does that trump repetition in context um, with a communicative purpose behind it? It's that's going to be hard to convince me, but a very good book. I'm not quite finished with it, but I think it is a good read for any language teacher or CI teacher, it really shows things a lot from the student's perspective and how modern cognitive science can help teachers improve in any discipline. Um, and there's a lot of good practical tips in here um, about refining your practice generally. Although, like I said, it's not specific about languages. So highly recommend. That's a good book to check out. I really... I realized I got to the end of this and I didn't really talk about building community. I did mention sort of how it was going with the German one class and some of the things I've done to build community in there. So um, I, I will throw a few other pointers out there. One thing I found, and this is a weird kind of something I backed into, helping build community in your classroom by 
controlling the phone situation. I finally found something that works for me when it comes to phones. And I've seen lots of posts on this. And, you know, use at your own discretion. But I was talking to another teacher. Oh, phones are a problem for me. They won't get off their phones. They won't get off their phones. And she said to me, oh, just I take the phone. And it's like, hmm, I don't feel comfortable me physically taking possession of the student's phone. So she said, oh, I have a place to put them, kind of the phone jail thing. And I know this is not a new idea, not revolutionary. But the way I've treated it, I think, is a little different spin. So here's a scenario. Student has, you, you, you walk past a kid and they're on their phone doing something totally unrelated to class. They're literally playing a game. They're Snapchatting, whatever. So how do you approach that? You're in the middle of delivering content. How do you, what do you, what's your, what's your approach to that? So you could get angry. You should just, you could just discreetly tell the student to put the phone away. You could politely ask the student to put the phone away and they may, and then you're going to walk down the aisle. And then as soon as your back is turned, the student will get the phone out again, almost every time. You need to have a consequence. Turns out the worst consequence for these students is being separated from their phones. So I took this plastic flip top container that my boyfriend gave me um, and I decorated it with two eyes and a little lips with little just cardstock that I drew on and cut out. It looks really lame. Um, but originally I called it cell phone jail, Handy Knast. And it gave me a chance to use a fun word for jail, knast. It's, it's more of a slangy term than, it's like I'm going in the clink, um, which is a good fun word. But I was like, I'll make it a monster. Like the monster's hungry for fo- cell phones. Oh, der monster hat hunger. So I turned it into ACI thing, something I repeat. Oh, der handy monster hat hunger. The, hand, the cell phone monster is hungry. And now it's, and these are the, here's the rules. I have to see the kids using, the kid using the phone. I didn't want to create an environment where kids are ratting each other out. And I've had to very stop and specifically say that. Like my back will be turned, I'll be writing on the board, and I'll, I'll hear, so-and-so has her phone out. And I'll say to kids, you cannot rat out somebody else. I have to see them using it. Because if someone is quickly checking their phone for a second while my back is turned, and then I turn back around and their attention is back on what we're doing, That's teaching a kid to use a phone responsibly, right? The whole point is I don't want it to be a constant interruption. I don't want to constantly compete with the phone. So you have two choices. You can exhibit some self-control and put the phone out of sight and learn to discreetly check it when you feel like you absolutely must or you're going to lose your phone for the period. So if I see it and and I treat it like a silly game, I'll just... If I see a kid with a phone, I'll say, oh, handy, handy, handy monster. And it becomes not to shame the kid, but now it's a joke that everybody is in. And the kids kind of laugh, oh, you have to go to the cell phone monster. And the kid will like begrudgingly get up and slink across the room and put the thing in the box. And one period I got like six phones. How does that help build community? It gets their eyes off the phones and up and in the classroom. The kids can't sit back there and hide behind their phones. I I just, 
And, and this is also why I, I try to use the laptop sparingly. We have one one laptops, but that's something else they like to hide behind. And then that becomes another screen that they can hide their phone behind. So I'm trying to create this culture with laptops where either we don't use them for most of the period and then we get them out right at the end and just use it for one specific task and then put them away. I don't like to ever start with the laptops and have them out most of the period. Sometimes I do when I have them do an electronic follow along form because um, I sometimes I just don't want to collect it in paper. But now I'm sort of more convinced maybe I'll go back to some paper stuff. Um, because I got some great ideas from conference today that I think work better on paper. Still going to be even more sparing with the Chromebook with the laptop usage. Including all the students I, and appreciating that students are going to come into the community at their own time. And some may never come fully in and that's okay because some kids are uncomfortable. Some kids are introverts and putting them on the spot and forcing them is going to alienate them. Um, giving the students options to do alone or with a partner. That's nice. Some kids like working together. Some kids don't. Giving the students who want to be front and center the opportunity to be front and center from time to time, but not letting them take over. It's really your approach. You want your, you want your class to be some place the kids like to come and not because it's quote unquote easy or I don't know. My students, more than anything this year, I've heard over and over again from students they like coming to my class. And I don't say this to, because I have some inflated sense of ego. This is just things I've heard. I, and I say it's like, it should be a pleasure. Learning should be a pleasure. What we get to teach kids as language teachers is inherently fun and interesting. It is more interesting and potentially more interesting than many other topics that kids are going to encounter in school and it and it uses hardware and software that's just hardwired into their brain they don't have to learn how to learn a language we just have to give it to them in a way that they already can digest that's it that's all ci is you're if you don't want to teach with ci and i have some colleagues that i feel like they're on the edge but maybe they'll never quite get there because they have some very specific beliefs about how classrooms should be run and they're kind of incompatible with the philosophy of, of doing a comprehensible method. So I don't know, maybe they'll get there, maybe they won't, but even a little bit, it's, it's like pizza, right? Even a little bit's better than none. And if I get teachers to be a little more understanding, to be um, a little more open-minded with what counts as good work, with what counts as success, and what the growth process in a language truly looks like, then I think I've succeeded. Not that my goal is, I don't know, I just want to help other students have a good time in language, whether they're my students or other or other teacher students. So that's all. Anyway, I hope this hasn't been too rambling uh, and you hope you got something out of it. Thanks for sticking with me. Appreciate your attention and I hope you're doing well. Share with me. Find me on Twitter. Um, you can respond to my posts on Facebook if you found the podcast that way. Um, let's interact. And hope you're doing well, and talk to you next time. I'd like to thank you for listening to today's episode of Teaching Comprehensibly. This is your host, Joel Sidwell. You can find me online on Twitter at Hair Sidwell, H-E-R-R-S-I-D-W-E-L-L. The website for this podcast is teachingcipodcast.com. There you can find podcast notes, links to relevant resources, 
and all of the other episodes. The intro music was provided by Ryzen, R-Y-Y-Z-N. Check them out on YouTube. Again, thanks for listening. Take care. Bye-bye.